and welcome back to Fixing Chicago, a locally based podcast that's showing what right looks like in terms of how to advance Chicago into the 21st century and move things forward. Today, we are very excited to present our esteemed and honored guest, uh, Dr. Ram Stevens. He's a uh, Chicagoan and he is just back from Ukraine working in the medical system and he's heading back there soon. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce him, Dr. Stevens. Good afternoon, Dr. Roach. Thank you for inviting me. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. In good biking shape and never never better. I'm uh, anxious to, to tell you about my experience in Ukraine. I'm really excited to, to hear it. I think Chicago has a very large Ukrainian population and as well as uh, Central European. Plus, it's just an issue of tremendous national importance as well. So, before we get into it, would you mind, for the benefit of the audience, just describing who you are and, uh, and who you've been? Of course. So, just a brief bio. Uh, I'm a medical doctor uh, specializing in anesthesiology and uh, critical care medicine. I am currently a professor of anesthesiology and medicine at the Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Sciences in North Chicago. Uh, I work uh, as an intensivist for the Advocate Aurora system uh, in their tele-ICU in Oak Brook, Illinois. Uh, and for 36 years, I was a medical officer in the United States Navy, uh, beginning as a medical student when I had a scholarship, a health professions scholarship to attend the University of Wisconsin uh, School of Medicine and Public Health in Madison. Uh, after my residency in anesthesiology, I served uh, initially for four years on active duty at the National Naval Medical Center in Bethesda, now renamed the Walter Reed National uh, Military Medical Center. Uh, I served uh, in the Navy Reserve after I left active duty uh, and after 9-11, spent uh, four years, uh, I'm sorry, four combat tours in uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, and East Africa, retired from the Navy in 2014. I worked for the VA uh, healthcare system. As you know, uh, where we worked together at the Captain James A. Level Federal Healthcare Center in North Chicago, I worked for five years as a clinician, as an anesthesiologist, as an intensivist, and later as an administrator and healthcare leader. I retired in 2016 uh, as the assistant chief of staff. Uh, I have worked in the Advocate Aurora system since 2016, and. Uh, as we will get into in a few, few minutes, uh, when the Russian invasion occurred in, uh, on February 24th, 2022, I volunteered to serve as a physician volunteer uh, in Ukraine. So, Ram, the other thing is you did train in critical care at University of Maryland, which is something you and I also share, as I trained in general surgery over there. Yes, uh, and we've talked about that many times. Uh, we both agree that that was the University of Maryland and the Shock Trauma Institute uh, in Baltimore is a wonderful place uh, to train. 
uh, well, for medical fellows, and uh, we both profited greatly from our experiences, uh, particularly working with uh, Professor Tom Scalia at the Shock Trauma Institute. Uh, that was a very, very hard uh, uh, period for me. I spent a year in Baltimore between my second uh, deployment to Iraq and my deployment to Afghanistan, uh, but it was certainly necessary for me to gain those uh, trauma care skills uh, that I used uh, every day in Afghanistan. One of the awesome things about being in military medicine is you get to do these tremendous training opportunities, whether it's at University of Maryland or University of Chicago or wherever we do them. The hard part is, because you've already mixed in some military service, we're older than the other boys and girls when we do this. That uh, uh, I was the oldest one by far in my, my surgical oncology fellowship, and you were the oldest one by far at University of Maryland. That's a tough fellowship for somebody who's younger. Uh, how was that? Well, I was probably 20 years older than the next oldest fellow. And I, I got to tell you, it was uh, it was tough. It almost killed me, but it did. Hardcore. That's hardcore. It was uh, it was a hard fellowship, but uh, I, I thank my lucky stars that I had the opportunity to do it. I was 52 when I started the fellowship. Uh, interestingly, uh, I went from that fellowship almost immediately to mobilization, training, and deployment to Afghanistan. About two days before we finished the fellowship. I was talking to one of the other fellows who was a surgeon from Israel, I thought. I had always assumed that he was uh, born uh, Israeli. It turned out that he was uh, Russian and that he had served uh, as a draftee in the Soviet army and had been one of the last Soviet soldiers to leave Afghanistan when the Russians pulled out of Afghanistan, and I believe it was in 1988. And wow. so I mentioned to him that I was going over to Afghanistan, and then he told me the story, and I realized uh, what his background was, and I hadn't hadn't realized that the whole the whole year that I'd worked with him in the fellowship. Well, uh, a Navy friend of mine who has passed away now, uh, Captain Zolt Stockinger, he gave me a book. It was of a Russian surgeon in World War II, and it's a book he wrote about being a surgeon up in the front for Russia with, you know, what we call the Eastern Front. And I'll, I'll send you out with that book, Ram. It's a fantastic read. And, and if you think we have it rough, they were moving their hospital with horse train. All right, well, back to the, back to the task at hand. We're going to move toward discussing the current war in Ukraine. And to begin with that, we'll frame it. And Ram, if you'll help me plow through the history, just so everyone is a little bit more aware of how this thing has developed, I think that would be helpful. We'll try to move through it quickly. Let me, let me start out. So Ukraine, for most of its history, has been part of uh, other empires. In the Middle Ages, it was part of the, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and parts of eastern Ukraine belonged to the, uh, to the Russian Empire. After, uh, in the late 18th century, when Poland and Lithuania were partitioned by its neighbors, the area that is now Ukraine uh, became part of the Tsarist Russian Empire and part of the Austrian Empire. 
and uh, remained that way until World War One. There was the Eastern Front, as we we know it, moved through much much of of Ukraine uh, during World War One. At the end of 1918, Ukraine was totally controlled by German and Austrian forces. But then, uh, with the the armistice on November 11th, 1918, uh, and the capitulation uh, essentially of Germany and, and the disintegration of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, uh, what uh, became Ukraine uh, actually uh, was again partitioned between the, a nascent uh, Ukrainian Republic and the uh, Second Polish Republic. Uh, was fought over first between the Ukrainians and the Poles, and later between the Ukrainians and the Bolsheviks, and finally between the Poles and the Bolsheviks. And in the early 20s, the area that's now Eastern and Central Ukraine became part of the Soviet Union, became part of the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. Uh, Western Ukraine, where I work, became part of the Second Polish Republic. And it remained so until 1939, when Poland was again uh, invaded and partitioned by its neighbors, by Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia. The Germans then, a year and a half later, uh, invaded the Soviet Union uh, and uh, captured and occupied uh, most of Ukraine. Again, Ukraine was a battleground between Soviet Russia and Nazi Germany uh, until 1944, when the Germans when the Germans were pushed out by the Soviets. And, uh, and if I if I can jump in, the intent of Nazi Germany at that time was to clear out that entire area, wasn't it, for living space? Well, yes. So there was the concept of Lebensraum, which means living space, that the, uh, the Germans wanted to create an area in the east uh, where they could settle uh, German settlers. However, the area around western Ukraine, uh, which is known as which is known as Galicia, which had previously been Austrian, treated somewhat differently by the Nazis. And the Nazis, the Nazi rule was a little bit less less harsh in that part of the country, unless, of course, you were Jewish. The Nazis murdered almost all of the, the citizens, the Jewish citizens of uh, Western Ukraine. At any rate, there were uh, partis- various partisan groups, uh, Polish as well as Ukrainian, uh, and some Jewish that fought uh, the Nazis and later fought the uh, the Soviets. The Ukrainian partisans uh, continued to fight the Soviets well into the 50s before they were finally defeated. Well, this is all off the top of your head, too. So that's a pretty impressive history. I think as well, what we should mention is some of the more recent stuff The things I would like to add is, one, I don't know if any area in the world can claim more suffering than Ukraine has in the past century. Do you think that's a legitimate statement? Yes. uh, I would say that the 20th century was uh, very violent, uh, particularly for Europe and parts of Asia, as well as Africa, but extremely violent, fought over by various totalitarian regimes that tried to uh, occupy and control various parts of Europe. And uh, of course, we all had hoped in 1991 at the end of the Cold War that those days would be in our past. And and my point in bringing that up is simply that might help explain why they're fighting so fiercely right now. They suffered 
They were in the center of the battle for World War I. They were in the center of it for the Russian Revolution. Then Stalin, once he took over, persisted in treating Ukrainians viciously. And he starved them, he pushed them into collectivization, he stole everything from them. And if I mention that he starved them, he really starved them. I don't remember how many millions died, but it was... At least, at least three million. At least three died million. Died in the early 30s. You know, and the and, Ukrainians uh, memorialized that. Uh, they call it the uh, Olodomor, the uh, genocide by, by hunger. Wow. And, and, you know, so I think that for them right now with Russia invading, this is such an existential fight. They are not going back to being dominated by their neighbors. Absolutely not, Paul. Uh, the Ukrainians, and I, I had a, the opportunity to serve with the Ukrainian Navy in 2011 and 2012 when I was the Deputy Surgeon for the U.S. Fleet, U.S. Sixth Fleet, uh, headquartered in Naples. We exercised with the Ukrainians uh, annually in an exercise called Sea Breeze. Uh, and I visited Odessa twice in those years and became very knowledgeable about the Ukrainian Navy and uh, made uh, many friends amongst the Ukrainian Navy officers. So I was not at all surprised in February of uh, 2022, this year, when the Russians invaded Ukraine, I, I knew that the Ukrainians would fight very hard because they are fighting for not only democracy in Europe, but they are fighting for their culture, their language, their religion, their way of life, and their uh, ability to choose their own form of government. And the Ukrainians uh, do not want to ever be part of Russia again, and will fight to the death. And thank God NATO and uh, other Western countries are supporting. Thank God for that. Thank God for that. All right. Well, we'll plow through the uh, recent events, and we'll get back into your story now. In 1991, as the Soviet Union was disintegrating. The Ukrainian parliament declared independence August 4th. That was, I think, the second time they tried that, and this is the one that they consider their independence day, if I'm not mistaken. It's uh, August 24th is their, their independence day. All right. In 92, NATO contemplating adding Central and Eastern European members. In 94 was the Budapest Memorandum between Ukraine, U.S., U.K., and Russia. And this, I think, I haven't read much about it, but it seems to me very significant because until that time, they had the world's third largest stockpile of nuclear weapons, and they traded them away for guarantees on their sovereignty. And I think this is really important because there are other countries on the, in the world who would be nuclear powers if allowed, and the impact on Ukrainian sovereignty by trading away their nuclear weapons has been pretty detrimental. And, uh, you know, I'm just John Q. Public here, given my opinion, but uh, this is a deal that has been, is being broken. They, they were promised sovereignty and now they're not getting it. In 2004 was the Orange Revolution. Two politicians, uh, one was Russian backed and one was more popular backed, uh, Yanukovych versus Yukashenko. In 2013, this is when 
Yanukovych did not sign the EU agreement. I think there was a change of heart or maybe he external pressure. He was supported by, by Russia and he uh, reneged on supporting a free trade agreement with the European Union. That was uh, in the fall of 2013, and that led to uh, what's known now as the Revolution of Dignity or the Maidan Revolution after the Maidan Square in central Kiev. And that uh, started in uh, February of 2013 and went on through, I'm sorry, uh, November of 2013 and went on through February of 2014 and led to uh, Yanukovych uh, being ejected from Ukraine uh, and a new government uh, being formed. And during that time, initially, the, the uh, government directed the, the police to uh, brutally suppress the, the demonstrators, the democracy demonstrators, uh, who were demonstrating for uh, better integration with the European Union. And uh, over 100 demonstrators were brutally shot uh, some by police snipers that were positioned on top of buildings in central Kiev. Uh, and those uh, martyrs are remembered today as the uh, Heavenly Hundred. And there are several memorials throughout the country uh, to those, those martyrs, including in Lviv, where I work. And that was, as I mentioned, called the Maidan Revolution or the Revolution of Dignity. And that led to a uh, change of government in in Kyiv that was more Western oriented, more oriented towards the European Union and towards NATO. But that then led to uh, Russian invasion of and occupation of Crimea, completely illegal uh, under, under international law. And also the Russians then uh, backed uh, some separatists in far Eastern Ukraine near the Russian border in the Donbass region and, and the two uh, provinces or oblasts called Luhansk and Donetsk. Uh, the two of them together are collectively called the Donbass. And that uh, led to an armed conflict, which went on, uh, which is still continuing, and uh, led to Russian uh, occupation of uh, parts of the, the Donbass. All right. Uh, then there's the cyber attacks that began prior to the invasion of Donbass and Luhansk, which have continued in Western Europe and saturating Ukraine as well, and in the U.S. Uh, in 2019, Zelensky was elected, their current president. He vowed peace. Our president at the time, Trump, blocked international aid to Ukraine and, and famously asked for a favor. And in 2021 is when Putin amassed 100,000 troops on Ukraine's borders, both in Belarusia, right up north, and to its eastern border. Zelensky begged NATO for a membership plan, and Putin, uh, three days before the physical invasion, came up with his sort of his version of history, which is completely skewed or fabricated, depending on how. You want to frame it, and uh, and essentially what he's declaring is that he wants to erase the Ukrainian culture, and that this is all Russian, and there's no such thing as an independent Ukraine. So Does that Putin, sound correct? He made is that uh, that modern Ukraine was a was a work of fiction, 
by the Bolsheviks, by Lenin specifically, uh, who created the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic uh, in the early 20s. Of course, that completely ignores hundreds of years of history of Ukrainian culture, language. I can tell you that the Ukrainians love their language. It's a very melodic language, Eastern Slavic language related to Polish and Russian, written in the Ukrainian Cyrillic alphabet, which has 33 letters, by the way. Uh, but it's a very melodic language that very much lends itself to poetry uh, and to uh, folk songs. And uh, in Lviv, I was luckily able to experience uh, many uh, street musicians uh, singing Ukrainian folk songs. Uh, and it's a wonderful language to listen to. Um, I only wish that I knew it better. Well, let's get to that subject right now. So tell me, how did you decide, once this invasion was initiated, how did you decide that, that you belonged there, that you were going to head out? Well, as I mentioned previously, Paul, and you know well, I served as a medical officer in the United States Navy and Marine Corps for 36 years. I had four tours uh, during Operations Iraqi Freedom and Enduring Freedom and had uh, learned many of the lessons of military medicine that our services and NATO medical services collectively learned over the last 20 years about how to treat war casualties. And I thought that I had skills that I could offer to our Ukrainian colleagues uh, to help them uh, deal with the war casualties and perhaps perhaps increase their uh, the rapidity of, of learning. So uh, I found an NGO that was willing to sponsor me. I bought a ticket uh, and uh, flew to Munich, got on a train in Munich, uh, took the train to Poland to the end of the line, and then transferred to the Ukrainian train system and uh, arrived at Lviv. Wow. And when was that? That was uh, on the 1st of May, and I subsequently stayed for two months. When you got there, what was your first impression? How did, you know, you're, 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 you're landing at the train station, and you're getting out, and you look around, and you're thinking, all right, what's my first step? Well, we arrived at night, and... Ukraine is under martial law, so there's a curfew between 2300 and 0600 in the morning, so nothing moves. So there's no trams, buses, taxis, uh, and we arrived without transportation to get us into the center of the city. So we fortunately found some volunteers that were working there that uh, realized that we were also volunteers, medical volunteers, and they gave us a ride in one of their uh, private vehicles and dropped us off in the center of the city at our hotel, which was a very uh, nice and culturally uh, historically interesting building built in 1793, uh, became a hotel uh, sometime in the 19th century and was partially renovated. We stayed in the unrenovated portion, but the the ceilings were four meters. Uh, and, four uh, meters. The staff uh, was extremely friendly, uh, and once they they knew that we were found out that we were learning Ukraine Ukrainian uh, language, they uh, refused to speak to us in English. It was only in Ukrainian, 
which we appreciated very much. And uh, we very much enjoyed our stay there. The next day, we uh, made contact with, with our point of contact at First Lviv Medical Union, went to the hospital and met the administrators, the CEO and the chief of anesthesia, Professor uh, Natalia Martino-Letz, and um, got to work the following day. That's incredible. And what what did you find within the Ukrainian medical system? Was it similar to what you've seen in the U.S. or what you've seen in Europe? I know you did a year of training in, uh, in Central Europe when you were younger. How did it compare? Well, their system is completely different than the American medical system, so it's difficult to draw comparisons. It's a European system. It's a post-Soviet system. And it has, um, since independence, it was, it's been partially, uh, partially reorganized from uh, 2016 to 2019. Uh, the acting minister of health, uh, Dr. Uliana Supran, uh, started to, to make efforts to revitalize and revamp the, the medical system and was partially successful. She was able to uh, reorganize the primary care system uh, and partially reorganize the medical education system. But after three years, the president that she worked for was voted out of office. President Zelensky came in in 2019 and replaced the entire cabinet. Since then, they've had four new health ministers uh, since 2019. Of course, in 2020, the COVID epidemic, COVID pandemic started, uh, and for the next two years, the Ukrainians were completely consumed, as we were, by the uh, dealing with the COVID pandemic. And once they were clear of that, in January of 2022, they had a brief respite, and then on February 24th, the Russians invaded. So uh, since then, they've been, of course, dealing with the war and war casualties and really have not been able to make much progress in reforming their healthcare system. I can only imagine the strain. Here in the USA, when COVID hit, we were lacking all kinds of fundamental things, such as masks and gowns and staff, of course. Um, I imagine that was even worse for the Ukrainian medical. Well, they had to expand their uh, their hospital wards and their ICUs. They put in patient care areas that uh, previously not been patient care areas by running in oxygen lines and uh, electrical outlets. Uh, greatly increased the number of ventilators they had, but they had the same poor outcomes with ICU patients uh, with severe COVID that we had. So almost all of the patients that they put on ventilators died, just like in this country and everywhere else in the world. But I, I think that they also got, you know, some support from elsewhere in the Ukraine, in the European Union and from the United States and Canada, from uh, Ukrainian organizations in the diaspora. When the war started, they were recovering from the COVID pandemic. However, as I mentioned, it's a post-Soviet system that's uh, really not been reorganized. And so they have it's massively underfunded by the Ministry of Health. 
they have uh, enough doctors, but uh, far too many nurses and almost no rehabilitation specialists, like physical therapists and occupational therapists. They uh, have lacking uh, basic supplies like non-sterile gloves, sterile gloves, suture material, uh, surgical instruments, oxygen tubing, ventilator tubing, anesthetic agents, uh, antibiotics, uh, almost wow. everything. Yeah. And they, since the war started, they've been supported by other European countries in that regard, and also by United States and Canada that have shipped a lot of medicinals uh, as well as other medical supplies. Uh, and uh, that has that support has kept kept the hospitals afloat. It's been essential, huh? Absolutely. Uh, w- without that support, uh, they would be in bad shape. So, in in essence, you have you know a broken hospital system that is badly in need of, of reform. You have a lot of really good people, well intentioned, uh, educated, and uh, hardworking. Ukrainian doctors and nurses, uh, but a system that really doesn't support them very well. Uh, and now you have a war on top of that, which is uh, in the East has destroyed, uh, the Russians have destroyed many hospitals and clinics, as well as schools and private house uh, houses. And uh, they're, they're targeting the hospitals direct, just as they did in Syria. Uh, particularly in Mariupol uh, and in Kharkiv, and in some other areas, hospitals have been destroyed. Uh, we suspect that they've been targeted directly, but it's very difficult to prove. Well, like in uh, Syria, they would give the Russians coordinates of the hospitals in order to deliberately avoid them. And this is just what I've heard on other podcasts, such as the Kremlin file. And it's, it's no sooner would they get those coordinates than they would target and bomb those hospitals in Syria. And I think there's a lot of evidence to show not only that that happened, but that kind of everything that they're doing in Ukraine, such as in Bukha and whatnot, is is straight off of the Syrian playbook where they killed at least a half a million or maybe a million Syrians. Yes, I mean, the Russian Russian forces uh, have, have committed a large number of, uh, of war crimes uh, in, uh, in this war and uh, one can only hope that these war crimes are being investigated by the United Nations and other international bodies, uh, and that someday some of these perpetrators will be called to account for their, their actions. There have been over 140,000 dwellings that have been destroyed by the Russians. Uh, at least 12,000 civilians have been killed, although that's probably a gross undercount. And, of course, military casualties have not been published by either side one can probably safely assume that there have been at least 25,000 soldiers killed uh, on both sides of, of the conflict. It's just so, incredible. That's, that's more than they lost in all of their 10 years in Afghanistan. The other issue is, um, is the displacement of people. That uh, this, is, this war has, has resulted in the largest displacement of people since 1945 in Europe. Uh, specifically, Ukraine, with a pre-war population of around 44 million, uh, has uh, had uh, over 6 million of its citizens have uh, fled Ukraine, almost all of them elderly people, women and children. 
because of martial law, the men between the ages of 18 and 62 uh, have been forbidden from leaving the country. So their wives and children have fled uh, without them. Uh, and there's been an additional over 6 million Ukrainians that have been internally displaced from uh, the areas where the fighting is most severe in the east and in the south. These are just incredible numbers. So we're talking about over 30% of the population has been displaced by this war. It's a huge number. Wow. Incredible. And, and the medical system is doing its best to, to meet that enormous challenge. How, how does the medical education hold up through all of this? And the reason I ask is because it's only natural that the physicians they've already got and the nurses and the occupational therapists and everyone else are going to get older, they're going to get tired, they're going to get exhausted. And if you're not replenishing that with a robust medical education system, it's going to fail, you know, inevitably. And yet the medical education system is kind of like an orchid. Everything else has to be in place before the medical education can really happen. So that's why I bring that question up. Well, I think it, it differs in various parts of the country. Uh, in, in Western uh, Ukraine, where I work, the medical schools were generally uh, founded by the Austrians under the Austrian-Hungarian Empire in the 18th century and 19th century. In the eastern part of the country, by the Russian Empire, the high school or the school, primary and secondary school, is 11 years. Uh, medical school, like elsewhere in Europe, is six years. So they go directly from high school graduation to medical school. The last year of medical school includes a number of clinical rotations, uh, very similar to the German and Central European system that I know well. Uh, and then uh, after medical school, uh, they do what, what they call an internship. We would call it a residency. Uh, and generally, uh, it lasts between two and three years. Uh, for example, family medicine is a two-year internship. Uh, anesthesiology is now a three-year internship. General surgery is a three-year internship. And these are spent in generally in government-funded hospitals. I would say that the salaries that are paid to the doctors are extremely low. As I mentioned, the medical system in, in general is massively underfunded. Uh, for example, an attending anesthesiologist might earn $500 a month uh, wow. gross pay, and an anesthesia resident might earn $125 a month uh, gross pay. Uh, so not not nearly enough to, to live on, and that leads to people having second or third jobs. Uh, also may encourage some uh, instances of graft corruption. The patients... That have that are covered under the government program, that are not uh, privately insured, and most patients are not privately insured in Ukraine. Uh, those patients are often required to pay uh, for or purchase medicinals such as antibiotics, uh, sometimes uh, epidural sets or central line sets, and uh, because those are not paid for by the Ministry of Health, uh, and so the. Uh, Patients or their families have to purchase these things from pharmacies uh, separately and then provide them uh, to the treating doctors. So it's a, it's a system quite a bit different than the American system uh, and really 
I would say uh, doesn't doesn't meet the uh, general standards and that you would find in Western Europe. And I think that now that Ukraine is a candidate member join the EU, that their goal is to uh, reach uh, raise their standards to uh, equate uh, to those in uh, Central Europe. And that will require a lot of work, uh, a lot of a lot more funding, and a lot of help. Wow, a lot of help, I bet. Well, to that point, at the moment, do you know who might be, and it might be different in Western Ukraine than Eastern, but from your experience, who do you think is in place helping the medical system out at this moment? Well, it appears to me that there's a lot of different organizations that are involved, uh, many NGOs, from uh, many countries in the world, Western Europe, uh, as well as organizations like Doctors Without Borders. And there are, of course, governmental organizations like USAID, for example. Uh, the Germans, uh, their health ministry is directly helping the Ukrainian ministry. In fact, I met the uh, German health minister in Lviv while I was there uh, at a fundraising event. The Ukrainians would like to establish a national rehabilitation center in Lviv to deal with some of the war injured, particularly the amputees. And they invited the German health uh, minister to attend. Uh, the EU uh, is helping as well as the individual EU states uh, are supplying additionals um, and uh, re uh, consumables uh, such as gloves, IV tubing, etc. And then there are Ukrainian NGOs that are working with uh, foreign donors uh, to supply things like uh, individual first aid kits for the Ukrainian soldiers on the front. I mentioned Dr. Uh, Uliana Suprun, who is the acting minister of health from 2016 to 2019. She founded an NGO back in 2013 uh, that supplies individual first aid kits and provides uh, tactical combat casualty care training to Ukrainian soldiers. And that's been going on for some time. U.S. Department of Defense and Department of Defense of the, uh, the British, the Canadians, and many other NATO countries uh, and Australians and New Zealanders has also, also been providing first aid uh, and TCCC training uh, to the Ukrainians uh, since 2014 or thereabouts. So there's a lot, a lot of agencies that are involved in a lot of countries that are involved uh, in supporting the Ukrainian. That's pretty incredible. The, the, the groups far and wide who are participating in trying to help them out. What kind of help do you think that they need the most? Well, I think, you know, aside from, from basic consumables and some equipment supplies, I think that education uh, help. Uh, to improve the knowledge base of the Ukrainian specialists. Things like, for example, in my specialty in anesthesia and intensive care, uh, training in uh, bedside ultrasound, uh, things like uh, fundamentals of critical care support, and things like advanced trauma uh, life support that is uh, a two-day course offered by the American College of Surgeons. I think that courses that can be exported uh, in, in a couple of days uh, and train large numbers of people uh, to help them increase specific uh, 
skills, skill set would be helpful. Personally, I spent two months uh, at two of the teaching hospitals in Lviv, and I plan to go back in about a month and spend another four months there. Uh, and my personal plan is to uh, continue to deliver lectures to the residents, lectures and workshops, and specific uh, topic areas in uh, anesthesia and intensive care medicine, as well as uh, trauma care, uh, transfusion medicine, and dealing with war injuries. And in addition, uh, one of the hospitals that I uh, that I worked at uh, is a 400-bed teaching hospital, uh, which is City Hospital Number 8 in Lviv, is uh, standing up a new burn center to treat uh, burn patients uh, and building a new ICU to take care of those patients. Uh, and that is another project that uh, we'll be involved in. And... Um, I fully anticipate that I will reach back to Chicago and to the Society of Critical Care Medicine to for some expertise uh, in burn care management uh, to try to help us uh, set up this new unit. So short of other people who may be listening, going there themselves, that isn't a realistic option for many and maybe not even advisable, but what do you think what do you think that engaged and concerned individuals could do from here, whether it's Chicago or anywhere in the state, that might be useful? You know, the number of casualties must be astonishing. If there's 25,000 estimated mortalities, there's going to be at least 10 times that in terms of injury. Well, it's probably about a four to one ratio, I think. A four to one, not 10 to one? Yes. That, that, that's what uh, at least the New York Times uh quotes the uh, U.S. and British intelligence agencies is using, but I think it's the most... 100,000, and yeah. with many of the hospitals being targeted and the system already reeling from, you know, long-term disinvestment and then COVID and, you know, what kind of help do you think Americans could lend? Well, I think the most important thing is, is that the Ukrainians win the war. Yeah. I That's see. number one. First and return think- fire. In order uh, for them to win the war, they need continued support by NATO and other uh, Western countries uh, with armaments, uh, artillery, uh, anti-aircraft systems, ammunition, uh, supplies, beans, bullets, and and band-aids. Because uh, the Ukrainians uh, have to win this war. They have to push the Russians uh, out of the port cities so that they can, again, export their wheat and other products through the Black Sea. Uh, and if the Russians continue to hold large areas of Ukraine, they will economically cripple the country, which is their Which intent. will then have ripple effects across the Middle East and North Africa and everywhere else. So the first thing is we need to militarily support the Ukrainian military. The second thing is, is support of the government. The Ukrainian government requires approximately $5 billion or euros a month just to pay salaries, to pay pensions, keep the lights on and keep the heat on uh, so that the Ukrainian government functions and government services function, which includes transportation system, the trains, the trams, the buses, as well as the hospitals and schools. And the European Union, as well as US, Canada, Australia, Japan, New Zealand, have been very good at supporting the Ukrainian uh, government in terms of uh, uh, financial contributions. So that's the next thing. Regarding their health system, I really think that they need some experts from 
Central Europe from countries like Poland, Czech Republic, maybe Germany, Austria, countries that have that have made the transition between a Soviet uh, system to a, uh, a modern European system. Because that wouldn't include so much Austria, but uh, in East Germany, they've made this transition as well as Poland, Czech Republic, uh, Bulgaria, Romania. Sending Americans over there is a double-edged sword because uh, oftentimes Americans want to recreate uh, the American system. That would not work in, in Ukraine. Uh, they really need to come up with Ukrainian solutions to their Ukrainian problems. That is uh, something we do. We created a uh, an American-style military for Afghanistan, which couldn't sustain itself for more than a few minutes after we left. Absolutely, Paul. You're, you're absolutely right. So I think probably the best model is to look and see how the Poles and Czechs did it, uh -huh. uh, because they, uh -huh. they've successfully made this trans uh, transition. And, uh, you know, uh, one has to be careful going over to, to a country and offering advice because, uh, at least in my case, uh, I don't speak the language, at least not very well, and I'm learning the culture. Uh, I know a little bit about the history, but uh, there's a lot of things I don't know. And so uh, I'm constantly checking with my Ukrainian friends and colleagues as to uh, how they see things and how they would do things and uh, trying to... Uh, offer some suggestions that are practical and doable, things that they can accomplish with their resources. Because if one comes in with, you know, a plan to build, uh, you know, a gazillion dollar hospital uh, in Lviv, probably won't won't work out like that because they, they right. don't have personnel, uh, the specialists, uh, and most importantly, the support staff. And it's not, not where they're at in their own evolution. One of, you know, Dr. Soprin's intents was to actually close some redundant hospitals. But during the Soviet times, the Soviets uh, assumed that the war with NATO would be fought in Germany and perhaps the Czech, uh, what's now Czechoslovakia, and perhaps Hungary, the bordering areas between this uh, Warsaw Pact and, and, and NATO. And Ukraine was, was going to be the rear area, the communication zone. So they overbuilt hospital beds, overbuilt hospitals. Uh, so they have a re, uh, redundancy of beds, uh, and they could probably easily close hospitals and consolidate some of their resources into a smaller number of hospitals. Uh, because right now they have a large number of hospitals that uh, require maintenance, require salaries, require money to keep the, uh, the lights on and, and, and heating. Mm -hmm. And uh, they need probably to be pruned as efficient as they could be. Yeah, got it. Got it. Well, I think what you're doing out there, Ram, is, is noble and it's important. I'd like to remind the listeners that this is not just an existential struggle for Ukrainians and Ukraine as a state, but for democracy as a concept. I feel that we are living through history once again when Nazi Germany was. Uh, committing genocide and marching its way, looking for living space through Central Europe. It didn't all happen at once. It was one country at a time at the start. And this is what's been going on here. We've already lost over a million people in Syria. And it is very clear that genocide is the intent within Ukraine. And, you know, once that's been accomplished, he's going to move on to other countries in Central Europe. I think the Central Europeans know that 
And it's incumbent, it's incumbent upon all of us in the West to appreciate the threat for what it is and to respond accordingly. And so I applaud what you're doing, Dr. Stevens. I support it. If there's anything I can do to get the word out, let me know. And uh, do you have any saved rounds before we sign off? Well, I just want to say, Paul, that I think what you your, your last statement was absolutely correct. That we uh, must support the Ukrainians because they are fighting for our democratic, our shared democratic principles. They are, of course, fighting for their right to determine their own form of government. They're also they're fighting uh, to maintain their culture, their language, and their religion. These are all things that this republic was founded, uh, founding principles. And I, I, I think that, you know, you and I served during the time that our country was involved in Middle Eastern wars for almost 20 years. And uh, to this day, I'm not sure exactly what we accomplished or exactly what we were fighting for. Uh, but I know what the Ukrainians are fighting for. I think mm -hmm. it's very clear to me that they were brutally attacked by their neighbor who's trying to subjugate them. I think it's incumbent on all of us in the Western world, uh, which includes our, our allies in Japan, South Korea, Australia, and New Zealand, to uh, support this country. And to me, uh, it has been a great honor to serve together with the Ukrainians. And I look forward very much to returning to Ukraine, to working again uh, with my Ukrainian colleagues uh, to care for patients and try to improve their healthcare system. So I thank you for this opportunity. Well, it's been incredible having you. Thanks again. And, and for all our listening audience, uh, thank you for listening. And if you have a topic or a person to be interviewed that you would like to have us reach out to or discuss, or if you have comments or feedback, please either log on to www.paulbryanroach.com. That's Brian with a Y. And click on the contact page. Or send your messages directly to letters at paulbryanroach.com. Thank you again, and we'll see you next month.